You're listening to Audio Agriculture, a podcast where three North Carolina Extension agents talk plants, animals, and everything in between. Audio Agriculture. Uh, this is Clint, and as always, I'm joined with Daniel and Anas. This week, our special guest is Johnny Rogers, and he works for NC State. Thanks, uh, uh, Clint, for inviting me to, to be a part of the program today. Uh, my name is Johnny Rogers. Uh, I'm an Extension Associate in the Department of Animal Science at North Carolina State University. And my primary role there is uh, coordinating the Amazing Grazing Program. And we, we can talk a little bit about amazing grazing now. Um, uh, that That is the NC State's uh, pasture-based livestock education program. And it's a program where we try to teach folks about better pasture management techniques for all types of, of grazing livestock. And one of our principal components is to uh, get folks to think about pasture ecology. And if you'll remember back, you know, biology is the study of life and ecology is that subcategory of biology that talks about the interaction of all living things. So, you know, a lot of producers think about their livestock and, you know, occasionally they'll think about their forages. But there's a whole lot of other things that are going on in our pastures Uh Principally, one of the major ones is our soil, the interaction with our soils. And, and a lot of times folks don't really think about, you know, soil health and managing their, their soil for better productivity. So we try to get producers to think about that soil, plant, animal interaction, and then the host of other organisms that uh, may reside out in our pasture ecosystems like wildlife, for instance, and just millions and millions of microbes that can play an integral part in uh, better pasture productivity for uh, for our farms. You know, I think I think Clint's uh, favorite uh, saying when we go out on on calls is you're you're not raising cows, you're growing grass, and the cows just happen to eat um, the grass. So that sounds kind of like maybe your emphasis is helping people realize that y- you know you really have to pay attention to your pastures, and there's a lot of profitability that can come from that. Um, do you find that, um, producers, like that's a fairly, um, like logical concept for people to understand, or do you get some pushback sometimes from people? Um, you know, that's, that's a great question. I'd say some of both, um, Daniel, we, um, uh, a lot of uh, livestock folks, you know, they're attracted to the livestock business, you know, regardless of what, what kind of livestock we're talking about, cattle, sheep, goats, horses, you know, you 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 like the livestock, or maybe you even like the people that the livestock have have brought into your life. You know, and I see that a lot. You know, because uh, the, there is a social aspect of livestock production through our, you know, livestock organizations and and whatnot. And you know, it we we do try to get folks to look beyond that to to just to look beyond their livestock and what is good for their livestock. Let's think about what's good for their grass and how could we grow better grass. And a lot of times, like I say, that may come back to improving our soil. It, you know, it, it will come back into some 
what we like to call adaptive grazing management techniques. And, and a lot of folks say, well, what's adaptive grazing management? Well, it's, it's very similar to management intensive grazing. We all have our own spin and our own names we like to label things with. But really, adaptive grazing is taking those basic grazing principles and tools that we might use and using those in a way that is responsive to changing environmental conditions. I always like to tell producers, grazing management would be easy if the animals had the same nutritional requirements 365 days a year, if, if the grass productivity was the same every day of the year. But we all know that's not true. You know, it's uh, we always like to say we're two weeks away from a drought, you know, because if it doesn't rain for two weeks, we've got a problem. You know, our grass growth has slowed. So we've got to change our management techniques in response to what's going on out there in our pastures. So we try to teach folks a lot about observations. Look at what's going on out there. What is your grass telling you? What are your animals telling you? And then try to help them, you know, make those decisions that will as, as you said, you know, lead the better productivity and, and profit and, you know, whatever their goals might be. If, if the end goal is not necessarily profitability, we have to understand that, you know, they just may want to have beautiful livestock and healthy pastures, you know, and we, we need to be able to help them achieve their goals, whatever they might be. What will you advise somebody who's trying to start livestock to make a choice, for example, between sheep and cows? So what should you consider first before you start and make a choice between these two? Yeah, that's uh, probably the advice I would have is for them to do a lot of research, maybe visit some farms that have all of those species you mentioned. And Find out what's best for them. Uh, uh, too often, we all probably get the call. Or I know Clint and I would get that call of, hey, you know, I've I've got this this land and I went out and bought this whatever type of livestock and now they're out of grass or things are not going very well. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's not easy uh, in some cases. Pasture-based livestock is, is uh, production is not easy. It, it's a complex system. And there's a lot of things out there that can that can go right. And there's a lot of things that can can serve as, as sticking points or challenges for us. So I would uh, I would start with some education, you know, and uh, and, you know, uh, a lot of that's going to kind of come back to what are you passionate about and also the size of your farm. Um, I do get some calls uh, about, uh, you know, someone, a landowner that has five acres or 10 acres and they want to be in the cattle business. And, you know, cattle is a very land intensive uh, enterprise and uh, you can't keep very many cows on five or 10 acres. So, you know, there's a certain size and scale that kind of makes sense, you know, for, for each size of farm. So usually I like to think, you know, get above 40 to 50 acres before we start thinking about the cow-calf business. You know, that's that's one segment of the beef production enterprise. If you've got um, a smaller uh, land mass than that, a smaller farm, uh, I usually suggest they maybe start with maybe pasture-raised beef or stocker production, which involves, you know, bringing in cattle and just growing them out. And that takes out the complexities of reproduction. 
when you start having cows, uh, you, you start uh, having to keep a bull around, and then uh, you know that that's going to pose a lot of challenges. Plus, the birthing process for a new farmer can be very challenging. So, I try to steer them in another direction. And again, on those smaller farms, from an economic standpoint and a profitability standpoint, small ruminants—I like to call them sheep and goats—really make more sense than beef cattle do. Uh, on those smaller uh, smaller farms, and I can kind of show them the relative economics really plays uh, plays out much more favorably to uh, sheep and goats compared to cattle on any size operation, but especially those smaller units plus the infrastructure. You don't have to have quite as much infrastructure to uh, contain a sheep as you do a uh, a cow, and and when I say infrastructure, I'm talking about something to physically restrain them in order to uh, maybe administer some type of treatment, you know, deworming or, or doctoring in some, some case. And, um, and maybe, you know, we need to broaden it up and not just talk about sheep, goats, or cattle. What if we maybe looked at maybe pasture-raised pork as a starter enterprise where you have a very short production window, you bring in some feeder pigs at about 50 pounds, you grow them over five to six months, get them to 300 pounds, and then you, you you send those off to be processed and either consume them for your, your own family or maybe they're going to be in the local meat production business. So it doesn't just have to be, you know, a grazing species out on our pastures. We can look at some non-grazing species as well. And, and usually those will come in maybe in combination with some grazers, too. So. Well, that's a good distinction. I know Clint has said that on calls. I'm not a, a livestock guy, but I've heard Clint mention it is that, yeah, pigs aren't they're not really pasture raised because they're not eating the forages but um i think you made that distinction at the end but for our listeners that yeah the pigs aren't eating the forages but they can be out on the pasture and you can feed them i answered an email yesterday about pasture raised pork and someone was wanting clarification about our pigs actually grazing and i said no they're really not you actually sows mature sows uh you know the the moms they they can have uh, they can meet some of their nutritional requirements from forages, but not very much. But young growing pigs, they are simple stomached animals. They have to have a source of, of, of grain, you know, but, but you can have them out on pasture. And a lot of times pigs root and they, they will kind of dis- disturb uh, pasture systems. So a lot of times I see folks using pigs as part of a renovation of an existing pasture, they put the pigs in a certain location, let them kind of tear it up, and then they come back in and reestablish that pasture in some type of new forage. So, so again, a lot of different ways that uh, livestock can be used. So I want to touch on, um, I know you've done some or been involved with some research with warm season grasses. And uh, I think it's a big benefit that a lot of producers, especially here in like, you know, the Piedmont region of North Carolina aren't quite hitting as strong as they could of, you know, cause I get a lot of questions about like, Hey, uh, can you come look at this pasture? I'm having a lot of weed issues or it's just not, you know, it's, it's just not a good producer in the summertime. Cause like, you know, we get hot and dry most of the time in summertime here is, you know, how can somebody that's never messed with warm season grasses, like what, what's a good way for them to get into it? What is probably their best warm season grass to try to go with? Um, 
you know, say like here in Caswell County with clay soils and stuff of, you know, cause that's, I try to tell guys is, you know, they, it's, everybody goes and resorts to spray and, and then their grass still isn't performing well. Cause you know, this isn't a cool climate. So cool season grasses are struggle in the summertime is, well, why don't you go out there and plant some warm season grasses? They grow so fast. They're going to shade out your weeds and then, you know, you can pass your cows on it and then come the fall, you can reseed that field in cool seasons again and let it get that, you know, that cool fall weather jump through the winter. Um, so can you hit on that a little bit of what's a good grass to start with in the Piedmont region and uh, what you're kind of looking at uh, grazing and biomass wise for warm season? Yeah, it's a very complex question. And, you know, I, I'd love to give the extension answer there is that it depends, you know, <laughs> each, each, uh, each, uh, each operation, but, uh, but seriously, um, that, that is a common challenge. I know we experience it. We farm in person County, my wife and I, so we, we have those same challenges and, uh, you know, it's, um, I always like to say that sometimes we're as likely to run out of grazing uh, grazing in the summertime as we are in the wintertime, you know, it's, it, it can happen, you know, and our goal on our farm is to try to graze, you know, at least 300 days a year, some type of forage. And, um, uh, so, uh, so that means we do need some productivity during the summertime. And we tried, uh, several different things, you know, on our farm, we've obviously in my role at NC state, I've worked with other producers that, and uh, have learned some of the things that they have found have worked for them. And the, uh, the right answer is somewhat mixed because, as I said before, when you go from one farm to the other, uh, some are real excited about one forage and then others will hate that same forage, right. you know, it's uh, based on their experiences. So, so uh, a little bit of detail here, probably the simplest thing for most people, people if they have limited equipment, and let's just say, as you described, Clint, a fescue pasture that is a, a thin stand, you know, going into summer. Well, first we need to think about why is it a thin stand? What it probably didn't become that way overnight. What what has happened there? Has it been overgrazed? Is is the whole farm overstocked? Um, so anytime I before I go in and reach for a bag of seed or, or a herbicide or something like that, I try to look at the underlying reason. Is there an underlying reason why uh, these pastures have, have arrived at this situation? And it may, it may be simply this pasture just needs to rest a little bit or we need to lower our stocking rate some. But quite often we do need to go back in and renovate pastures with some type of, of seeding uh, mix. Uh, one thing that we've tried that has worked really well is uh, just using crabgrass. And I know a lot of folks, those non-livestock folks and maybe in the horticulture world will say, oh my gosh, why are they planting crabgrass? It's an invasive weed. And it kind of is in a lot of situations. So you do need to think about it before you turn it loose on your farm, because I always like to say you don't plant crabgrass, you release it, you know, because it's going to be there forever. And uh, But there are some forage uh, types of crabgrass out there that are very productive. They can be seeded with, with minimal uh, equipment use. Uh, quite often, we can just run a pasture drag or something to rough the ground up a little bit. Uh, winter feeding areas is a great place to start to, um, 
to, to with crabgrass. You can go in and smooth out some of those areas, clean up some of the old hay left over from winter feeding, and broadcast some crabgrass, an improved variety of crabgrass, and they're available from numerous seed companies out there. And uh, that bare soil is really all the crabgrass needs. And sure, you're still going to have some weeds in those areas, probably some pigweed, uh, spiny amaranth, maybe some others. But uh, you're going to grow a lot of forage there where you would not have grown anything before. So that can kind of help us going into summer. But also those thin stands of fescue where you have some bare ground in between those um, uh, fescue plants, a great place to, again, uh, rough it up a little bit you know, either a light disking or a pasture drag and then broadcast some crabgrass and uh, pray for rain. And if you get good rain, then in the future, that crabgrass is an annual forage, but you it will uh, reseed itself. It's a very prolific seeder, reseeder. So, uh, so you can uh, count on having some crabgrass there again, like I said before, it's released. It'll be there year after year. And from there, so that's the, that to me, that's the shallow end of the pool. That might be where we want to start. And that will be enough for a lot of people. But uh, some folks have uh, that have a little more uh, use uh, uh, ability to use equipment are using some no-till drills and they're going in and establishing annual forages. Maybe in this same pasture, they decided that it wasn't worth saving this, this thin stand of fescue. They want to do a total renovation, clean slate. You can go in and, and burn it down with a non-selective herbicide like glyphosate and then drill in no-till, you know, some warm season summer annual mixes like sorghum sedan grass is one I really like, pearl millet. And that can give you really good grazing over the summer. But again, those are warm season annuals. So what are you going to do in the fall? A lot of folks will go back in and reestablish fescue you know, maybe uh, Kentucky 31 or an improved fescue, like a novel endophyte fescue, or they may decide, hey, we're going to let this field be summer annuals in the summer, winter annuals in the winter, and we're going to keep that rotation going. They, they find out that they kind of like that higher quality, higher yielding annuals as a part of their grazing system, not the whole farm, but just one or two fields maybe in their in their system. And the last one I'll mention, Clint, is uh, native warm season grasses. Those are, you know, as the name implies, native to this area. They're warm season perennial grasses that can be established. And again, those would probably involve a total renovation. Uh, but uh, those forages, I, I find mixed results. Some folks love those forages because they have very, once they're established, they have very minimal inputs needed to uh, to have good productivity. They're very tough forages. The downside I find out is that some people, uh, they, they do, they can't be overgrazed. They can only be used for a short window of time during the summer. So I find some producers who love native warm season grasses, especially those that like wildlife habitat on their farms, really good for that. One of the major benefits of natives they like the low input, but I have others that want to push performance and stocking rates a little higher, and they just don't like be, not being able to graze those acres uh, maybe during the winter time. So, so kind of mixed results there. Yeah, it seems like the answer to that is really goal dependent on what you're trying to accomplish. You know, yeah, are you how many head of cattle and things like that? Um, 
So I think that could definitely uh, <laughs> reach out to your local extension office to help you, you know, work on your goals and really think about what you want to be doing. Yeah, I think one of the biggest ones I run into is stocking rates and people overstocking. And, you know, it's, you know, you have that, well, you could reduce the number of cows. Well, then I reduce the number of calves. Yes, but you're also reducing your inputs. So you're probably going to come out a little bit more profitable. But, you know, the initial reaction is, well, that's three less calves a year. So it's also three less cows you got to feed. And then it's less fertilizer and because you're letting some pastures rest, move around. And, um, you know, it's, I try to push rotational grazing, let your pastures rest if you can. Um, you know, it's the classic soil stewardship, really. Um, so since you mentioned endophytes, I want to get into that too. Um, I was explaining this to Daniel, uh, yesterday, the day before. So I want to touch on this of, for non livestock people. And then also, you know, livestock people that might not know is, you know, so we have in our areas, you know, traditional Kentucky 31 fescue, and then you can also get novel endophyte and then there's endophyte free. Um, so can you touch on the differences in those? And then also, uh, what, I don't know if you've seen any effects with weight gain versus endophyte and novel endophyte. And then also like the genetic markers of cows slicking out with their coats, uh, and trying to rebreed for that. Um, so if you could touch on that kind of stuff, uh, that'd be great. You bet. Yeah, Kentucky 31, it's a, it's a wonderful grass. Uh, you know, it's certainly in the Piedmont and the mountains. It is the uh, meat and potatoes of our grazing system. It's the foundation. And, um, you know, uh, through most of the year, it, especially the wintertime, you know, it's, it's a wonderful forage. It can be stockpiled and strip grazed, and uh, it's, uh, it, it just does a lot of good things. Uh, the downside of Kentucky 31 is that it has the uh, presence of an endophyte fungus. It's a fungus that lives with, between the cell walls of the fescue plant. And it actually gives that plant um, survivability in an agronomic sense. So it, it makes it resistant to a lot of uh, uh, challenges in the environment, you know, pests, uh, dry weather. And so it, it helps the plant sustain itself. The other thing that it does is it protects the plant from another uh, thing that the, the plant would see as a predator, and that's a grazing animal, right? You know, uh, plants, uh, they need to protect themselves from the herbivores as well. So it, um, uh, it will kind of make the cattle and our grazing livestock kind of back them off a little bit, maybe make them a little lethargic, a little sick, kind of feel like it raises their body temperature, which... All of those things, even non-livestock folks can kind of say, well, that probably affects performance in a, in a, in a, a, a pretty negative way. And it can. It can Im impact both weight gains and reproductive rates uh, on like our brood cows or, or ewes or does. So, uh, so it's a challenge. So what do you do about that and, and how do we address it? Well, one thing we can do is, is go in and, uh, you know, the solution to pollution is – always dilution, isn't it? Or one of the solutions would be dilution. So give them something else to eat during those critical times. So if you have a, a compound that's your, your cattle are ingesting that raises their body temperature, it makes sense that the summer times when you're going to see the most negative effects. And we all see cattle camped out in mud holes or camped out in ponds or creeks trying to cool themselves off. So what if we just give them something else to eat in the summertime? Back to our previous conversation about warm season annuals uh, or some some other type, you know, of, of forages to graze during the summer. 
uh, that that can be really beneficial. Another great practice is to intercede clover, white clover or red clover into your existing fescue stands. Again, give the cattle something to eat besides fescue during the summertime can, can be really helpful. The other thing that we could do is we could get rid of our Kentucky 31 and plant an improved, you know, variety of fescue, some of the newer ones called novel endophyte fescues or endophyte free. So how do we get to a novel endophyte? Well, actually, what we could do is we could take a Kentucky 31 plant, and um, I, I'm not a plant breeder, but I, I can, I can. Uh, so I'll, I'll give you a very simplified version. You take Kentucky 31 and you just pull out the endophyte, basically. So that's a real scientific term there, pull it out, right? Okay, so, uh, so you, you can tell I'm an animal scientist, not a plant guy. So you, you pull out the uh, the endophyte, and now you have endophyte free. Kind of makes sense. You say, well, that's great. You know, that's going to help our cattle perform better, better reproduction, better gain. Why don't we stop there? Let's think back to what else that endophyte was doing for the plant itself. It was giving it major agronomic uh, resilience, I'll call it, in the environment. So you've taken that away and plus the cattle, it won't even back the cattle off now. So the cattle don't have reduced intake of, of the forage. So you've taken away all its defenses. So what's going to happen to endophyte free? In most cases, it's not going to last very long. So persistence can be a major challenge with endophyte free, even under great conditions, you know, uh, lower temperatures, you know, maybe I'm thinking the higher parts of the mountains, uh, you know, higher elevations where it doesn't get it hot uh, during the summer. You know, it may last longer up there, but in the Piedmont, it's just really going to be a very short lived. I'm thinking a couple of years, uh, two to three years at most under if you were under severe grazing conditions, you know, no rotation or limited rotation. It's going to be really tough to get it to survive. OK, so that's not a good option. Uh, hopefully we've convinced ourselves of that. So now, what if we took an endophyte that gives the plant resilience that we want, but it doesn't produce the toxins that negatively that, ne- that in a negative way in, impact our, uh, our our livestock? And that would be really great if we could do that, and we can. It's uh, it's called novel endophytes. So again, it has the endophyte fungus, gives the plant resilience but it doesn't produce the toxins that harm our livestock. Now, the thing about novel endophytes, before you get real excited about it and go out and, you know, want to, you know, redo your whole farm, it protects the plant against all the environmental things that we talked about up to this point, except one. If you're not producing toxins that back the cattle off of it, the cattle can basically eat it into the ground. So I always say, Go ahead and transition to novel endophytes, maybe a portion of your farm or maybe just a field or two on your farm that you might use strategically. In fact, that's what I recommend. Don't renovate your whole farm. Just use a field or two, maybe 25% of your total grazing acres. Renovate that to novel endophyte, but here's the kicker. You have to use good grazing management. And I'm not talking about moving cattle every 24 hours. I'm just talking about moving cattle maybe twice a week. So using some type of rotational grazing, whereas we talked about before, that plant can rest and recover before it's regrazed. Because remember, overgrazing is not grazing too short. 
it's grazing too frequently. It's coming back and taking a bite off of that plant before the plant's ready to be regrazed. So that's why we need some type of rotation, probably moving cattle a couple times a week. And uh, then, then novel endophytes are a great, uh, great option. As far as gainability and performance, during the summertime, uh, between Kentucky 31 and either novel endophyte or endophyte-free. See, the gain on both the novel endophyte and endophyte-free would be very similar because you don't have the toxins there. So in the wintertime, let's talk about the wintertime first. You would see maybe, oh, half a pound a day to maybe three-quarters of a pound a day more gain uh, during the wintertime. But during the summertime, you may have double the amount of weight gain, a pound or, or even greater uh, difference between Kentucky 31, cattle grazing Kentucky 31, and cattle grazing, you know, endophyte free or novel endophyte, just because those toxins really have a negative effect during hot weather. So there's uh, major economic benefits and ramifications to uh, um, converting to a part of your acres to a novel endophyte. And I the, one of the major benefits I had talked about is reproduction. You don't see a major boost in reproduction on fall calving herds because, again, those those toxin levels are not as high during the winter and it's not as hot. But if you're a spring calving on Kentucky 31, you can see some major reproductive challenges uh, with your uh, with your cattle. You know, so so I'll stop there. Wow, uh, I learned uh, something new today. I've never heard about uh, Nova Undefied before. So uh, my question is, is there an effect on the car? And then if um, it does, uh, it does affect uh, small ruminants as well, or it's just uh, car? Yeah, the, unfortunately, the uh, toxins in Kentucky 31 will affect all of our grazing species. I, you know, we raise sheep and we have raised goats and we do currently raise sheep on our farm. And I, I always thought that the, um, the negative effects of, of endophyte on, on our sheep and goats was, was not near as great as it would be on our cattle. And then uh, there was some good research uh, that has been done out of Clemson University uh, Dr. John Andre down there um, that has shown that there is a negative impact on small ruminants as well, both gain, uh, birth weight on lambs. So you, you do have smaller, uh, lighter weight lambs at birth, which, you know, don't grow as well uh, even after birth. So unfortunately, the, the endophyte does have a very a negative effect on sheep and goats as well. It just may not be as apparent as on our cattle. And then certainly the the one that, that has the, the most negative impact is on horses, uh, specifically reproductive horses. Uh, so if you have pregnant mares, you definitely don't want them grazing um, a Kentucky 31 tall fescue. Uh, now, if you have just pleasure horses that you're not breeding, actually because horses sweat and can dissipate heat better, Kentucky 31 does not uh, affect a horse, you know, again, just a pleasure horse uh, that much as, as some of the other grazing species. But um, it uh, on the pregnant mares, definitely not. No Kentucky 31 in their diet would be, be the best strategy. Yeah, that's we've we've had a, a few pregnant mares and uh, last the last trimester we always pull them off and start feeding them orchard grass or something. We gotta 
we got because we do all our own hay on our farm. So if there's a pregnant mare around, I got to go seek out some some something that's something different so we don't in that last trimester so that everything goes good and um it's it has something to do with with horses uh with milk let down and also it can thicken the placenta um yeah that, in that last trimester but that's my understanding you bet yeah mm-hmm. can you talk about the uh what they've seen with uh cattle's coats slicking out and how that can affect you know, their grazeability of, uh, you know, traditional fescue and what they've seen with breeding back cows, uh, with different coats. You know, we've talked a lot up to this point about how to handle the toxins in Kentucky 31 from an agronomic, a plant or, you know, a forage standpoint, we've really not talked about what we could do on the animal side. And I think, uh, selecting cattle that uh, shed their hair faster in the spring, uh, is a great tool uh, that we can use. Um, one of the characteristics that we are negative effects of, of Kentucky 31 we see on cattle is that they hold on to their winter hair coat longer. So if we find those cattle and select those cattle that actually shed off faster in the spring, uh, I, I won't say they're tolerant to, to not to the toxins in fescue but they are certainly there is some kind of resistance there they they certainly tolerate it better than their herd mates so um, and there have been some actually some peer-reviewed research uh, you know controlled research studies that have shown cows that shed their hair faster in the spring actually have higher weaning weights uh, on their calves so that's you know uh, that that means it's something we do need to select for. And I know we, uh, in our herd, we, we cooperated with the University of Missouri over several years now to, um, uh, we hair score our cows in the spring and then they have been uh, analyzing the data and they've actually calculated an EPD, you know, a genetic predictor, if you will, for hair shedding for our herd. And we weren't the only herd that's involved. But uh, and I do know there's some breed associations. The the American Angus Association has uh, currently a hair shedding EPD that producers can use. So if you're going out and selecting uh, bulls, you know, to bring into your herd, um, I would I'd do a couple of things. One, you can use the EPD, but I'd also go look at that bull, hair, you know, mentally hair score him. I would also uh, maybe go look at his uh, his dam and maybe uh, her herd mates, and maybe look at some sisters if you, if you can. And just uh, you look at them in the springtime and see what their hair looks like, you know. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of the uh, cattle producers and sea stock producers, they may mask some of the genetics uh, of this hair shedding by actually feeding you know, cattle, some, uh, you know, supplements or grain or something. But uh, so, so, you know, you, you kind of have to weigh all of those things in your, your genetic decisions. But, uh, but hair shedding is definitely something that I would encourage every producer to use and start finding those cows that, uh, and those cattle that shed their hair faster in the spring. I think that would be a major benefit to uh, everyone's herd in North Carolina. Yeah, that's what I I saw a study. I think it was with replacement heifers uh, with hair scoring and the differences in uh, you know uh, pregnancy rate and some other things uh, on first time heifers. What does EPD stand for? 
That's a great question. Uh, EPD is a expected progeny difference. It, uh, in simply, it is the best tool that we have in beef cattle, and they also have it in sheep as well, and and use utilize it in the pork industry. It's the best uh, genetic predictor we have for the genetic merit of an animal, and they have it for different traits like weaning weight, yearling weight, or birth weight. Uh, so um, basically, you can uh, mo- most uh, cattle uh, registered cattle are. Uh, uh, have a pedigree recorded with a, their breed association, like the American Angus Association records information for Angus cattle. So breeders will turn in information, you know, actual phenotypes, actual growth information, actual birth weight, actual weaning weight, actual yearling weight. And then through a series of, I'm not a genetics person either, but through a series of complicated uh, calculations, they can take that data and turn it into a prediction of what the offspring of that animal will be. So if you've got a young bull, a, a, a yearling bull that has not sired any progeny yet, we need to know, have some way to say, okay, this bull is going to excel as a low birth weight calving ease sire, or he's going to be a high growth, high weaning weight, high yearling weight sire. So it's just a tool that we can use. It's not, it's not an absolute. Okay, I, I will go back to say expected progeny difference. So really what we're doing is comparing what we expect the progeny to be from one bull compared to another bull you know, in the breed. So you know, a lot of times we get uh, you know, comparing a bull back to the average of his or her respective breed. So it's, it's just a way to try and find out as much about what you're buying or what you're introducing to your herd. And I think that's something that really um, Clint's opened my eyes open to is just how much emphasis there is on selection of the proper genetics for your herd. I think um, your average person doesn't realize that farmers are, you know, basically curating the genetics of their herd every single season, uh, which is pretty fascinating. Um I think it's also fascinating that, you know, it's like most things, not everyone agrees on what's the best thing to have. You know, there's not one bull that is the bull that is the best bull. You know, everyone wants something different. And then we also, you know, raise cattle on in California, Nevada, deserts, and then here in North Carolina and all over the place. Uh, different genetics are going to excel better. Yeah. One of the real interesting things that, that complicates issues is that, you do have cattle raised in North Dakota and you can buy semen on that bull and breed him to cows in North Carolina. And that can work out really well and it can work out really poorly because if you think about it, uh, we, we just talked about fescue tolerance and hair shedding. Uh, they probably want them to hold their hair as long as they can in North Dakota <laughs> to stay warm. So hair shedding is really not a big deal for them. And there's no uh, no fescue, you know, in the in the rangelands of North Dakota. So you're bringing in genetics that would be totally naive to Kentucky 31. And and uh, what's interesting is you bring in some cattle and they perform very well, just as good as some cattle that have been here their whole life. But you have some that just cannot, you know, tolerate the heat, humidity, and and fescue. Yeah, that's what we've we've talked about before, you know, in the office and trying to explain to people about selecting bulls and stuff like that is the same thing as 
you know, it's because we've got some some really good bull producing herds here in our county. And, uh, you know, that's what I try to tell people, too, is, you know, you can buy a bull here and the guy that's been doing it right up the road from you has the same type of grass, same climate. And that bull's, you know, sires and dams have been on this man's farm for generations. And you're getting all of that, you know, evolution just on that farm through that animal tolerating fescue you know hair slickness all that stuff and then you can take that and breed to your cows or you can get yeah you can buy semen from a random bull and basically play the lottery or gamble a little bit of what's going to happen because you're buying a bull from yeah south dakota colorado wherever that's never seen you know or had to deal with fescue and heat and um you know, it's, yeah, you, you can either win or lose, but, you know, most of the time the guy up the road that's got good bulls for sale is a lot less risk. In the context, I'm thinking of agriculture. So agriculture has kind of gone big ag where few, few seed companies kind of produce the majority of the genetics. And there's a lot of breeding going on around the country in different areas. And I think people are starting to, you know, realize that, yeah, the Midwest top producer isn't going to do as well, maybe in North Carolina, but it doesn't seem like there's that, um, like, is there a push towards, um, more, you know, like, I guess like a big egg mentality. It seems like whenever I think about bulls, I think of smaller producers who have, you know, kind of specialized and they kind of have a, a local knowledge around that, um, that, you know, the genetics that they are, you know, gonna sell. Is there a big egg component that's developing or has it kind of remained more, um, you know, smaller producer? It's a combination of, of all of that, but there is definitely a drive. I mean, the technology allows me to buy a bull from California. Farmers and ranchers, you know, a lot of those uh, uh, sales that are online, they're not 10 bulls. I mean, they're hundreds of bulls, probably 500, and they may have multiple sales a year where they may sell 1,500 to 2,000 bulls per year from one operation. So, yeah, there is a a definite economies of scale that, that helps you not just from an economic standpoint, but it also helps you from a genetic selection standpoint. And I won't go too far down this path, but if you just think about it, if you've got 10 cows and you're breeding them a certain way and trying to find an excellent, you know, offspring, the next great bull for, for your respective breed and for your customers, if you've got, you've got 10 chances to, to find that, Okay, in that 10 cow herd per year, if you've got a thousand cows, you've got a thousand chances to find that same animal. So it's kind of like the I call it the genetic lottery. You know, you can you can hit it or not, you know, and you just uh, so. So there's an economy of scale and there's a genetic uh, uh, progress scale that uh, that that comes with larger operations. So so there is some of that. But. I, I like to think, and I think Clint uh, had a great comment before, if there's a bull in South Dakota that you really want to introduce those genetics into your herd, you can probably find a seed stock producer, maybe within your own county or certainly within North Carolina or the three or four state area, that's probably using those same genetics. And you, I would probably recommend that you go buy a son 
out of uh, one of those herds that's out of that bull that that you are really like and uh, and go that route. I, I think that's just a safer way to go about it because it's not just that calf crop that you're producing. If you think about over about three generations, you know, the bulls that you bring into your herd, that's going to be the bulk of the genetics in your herd, assuming you're keeping your own replacement heifers. So, man, you can you can really make things better in in pretty short order, or you can take things the wrong direction in just a few generations if you're not careful. Is there any push for um, genetic modification? Because, um, you know, you were saying the, the odds, you know, if you have a thousand bulls versus 10. Well, and, and I want to specify for people, you know, we are genetically modifying cattle by breeding them and choosing, but I'm talking like literally inserting a gene from say another animal or another, you know, a fish or a a bird or something like that. Um, So that more direct targeted form of genetic modification. (laughs) Going going Jurassic Park here. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, feathered feathered cows would probably be more heat tolerant, but is, (laughs) is there a push? I imagine there's people trying various uh, things, but. Oh, there is. Yeah. Um, gene editing and uh, gene modification is is present in the livestock industry. Uh, currently, the legislation it is legislated by FDA, which is much more restrictive. And any animal, any livestock species, I think up to this point, it still cannot enter the food chain. So basically, it's still just in the the test tube stage. I'll call it the experimental stage. But I do, I do know I, I sit on the board of the Red Angus Association of America. So it's, it's the Registration Association for Red Angus Cattle. And um, we have uh, recently had one of our members that wanted to register some gene-edited animals. And we were not uh, equipped. Our bylaws, our rules were not equipped. We actually had rules in for cloning animals. So it, was, it wasn't a, a huge uh, deal for us. But we had to go in and, and decide as a board and as an association how we were going to handle that. And I have learned since then that it looks like those animals are going to move from being regulated by FDA to USDA which to me would be much less restrictive, much more ag food friendly. So that tells me this is getting ready to happen probably in the, in the short future, uh, near future where uh, we will be, those animals will probably be more widely used in, in selection and breeding. Today we, we are using DNA to select animals because you know, uh, it, it, again, we take that genomic information, that the gene information, and we put that into our EPDs. And what that does is it just adds to the strength of that expected progeny difference. Again, that's the best genetic tool we have and genomic enhancement makes that even better, a better genetic tool. So we're using that today and that's being very widely used by most all beef cattle breed associations. So we take a tissue sample, we send it to a lab for analysis. And again, we, um, we, that information is, is incorporated back into the, the EPD. The, uh, so that's pretty, that's pretty much like a 23 and me type sample. Exactly. Is- yeah. So they're, they're gene mapping, like, you know, there's guys that, are selecting replacement heifers and bulls and breedings and just based solely off gene mapping. And that's what like, you know, I, I fears 
you know, cause I've talked with my dad is, you know, uh, he grew up milking cows and we had, you know, we had Holsteins when I was young. Um, we sold out of the dairy herd and moved to beef and stuff. And his, his biggest thing with Holsteins was, you know, all his, all of our cows had great feet and legs, uh, great milk producers, but you know, we weren't, we weren't blowing milk out of the water, but you know, all of our cows got up to eat and nobody had mobility issues. And that's my biggest fear is, you know, you, you move, look at the Angus association, you know, 15, 20 years ago with birth abnormalities and stuff like that is if we get too ingrained into com- looking at the computer screen, selecting for genetics, instead of walking the herd and looking at who's got good feet and legs, you know, what are we open up? You know, I, I don't want to see that can of worms opened up again. And that's what I try to urge producers and that I deal with is, you know, look at EPDs, look at, look at what's going on on paper and stuff. Like, you know, if you can go see that bull, you want to get semen from, because you got to look at his feet and legs. And cause that's like you just said, three years down the road, those heifers are going to be the main cow crop in your herd is it, you got to look at mobility, longevity. Uh, you know, it's a lot goes into it more than just EPDs and computer screens. And, you know, you still got to be somewhat traditional about breedings and, of the gene selection are we looking for like the car resistance to disease or we're trying to produce more meats or great question uh and you know what we're really looking for it, it is better productivity um and and that's a very generic term i know but uh and there's a lot of uh there's there's probably oh i Every breed association looks at traits a little bit differently, and and they have different traits that they look at. But there's probably twenty to thirty different traits that that a breed association might look at. Everything from birth weight and calving ease. And if you think about calving ease, that kind of makes sense. Uh, you you don't want uh, to have to uh, have dystocia or assisted birth, so you want the calf to be born unassisted. You know, the mother lays down, has the calf, and everything goes well. She gets up, cleans it off, and it gets up and nurses, and everything uh, is off and running. So, calving ease, birth weight, that kind of makes sense. Then you have some what I call growth traits, a uh, weaning weight, and that's uh, we know that. Calves do not stay with their mamas their whole lives. Uh, beef calves are weaned at about seven to ten months of age, and uh, so that weight at that time is a, a key indicator of growth. And of course, yearling weight would be taken at a year of age. There's carcass traits, which marbling would be one of those. And y'all know about marbling. You know that's the intramuscular fat that uh, gives gives beef its uh, juiciness and, and a lot of its taste characteristics. So um, you know, we, we need a way to select for better uh, traits. And, um, you know, again, EPDs help us do that. But I think Clint brought up on a good point earlier. All of these genomics and EPDs, they're only as good as the actual data that gets turned into the associations. And a lot of seed stock producers that are raising bulls and, and heifers and females, you know, don't really understand that. You can't just take a blood or tissue sample and send it in and have perfect EP, perfectly accurate EPDs on your animals. Remember, EPD, the first thing, expected 
not absolute, not guaranteed, expected progeny difference. So we have to think about those things and we have to continue to turn in this data. So what makes better weaning weight EPDs? Actual weaning weight data (laughs) turned in from uh, producers from across the country. You know, it's not just North Carolina, it's across the nation, you know, for, for a breed like Angus. You know, you'd have Angus breeders in every state. So if they turn in all of this data and then we use it to calculate EPDs and then you bring in the genomic uh, component, all and especially on the genomic side, it has to have this raw individual data to keep those genomics accurate and relevant. So... Uh, Clint's right. You've got to turn in that data. And the other thing he said that resonates with me is good stockmanship. It's not about just sitting in a computer screen and saying, okay, 20 is more than 10, you know, as far as the number goes. It's looking at an animal. What's the what's the udder uh, look like on a cow? Is it sound? Uh, can a calf nurse it? Uh, what do her feet look like? Is she going to have good longevity? What's her hair shedding? Um, it, what's her disposition like? Uh, wild cows that are aggressive are not good for anyone. And the older I get, the more I dislike wild cows because I don't move as fast as I used to. And there's a safety factor there. And there's, um, you know, an economic factor of disposition well, hospital bills, if you start paying hospital bills out of your farm account because a cow run you over, uh, yeah, there's an economic relevance to disposition uh, pretty pretty quickly. Plus, there is some good research out of Texas A&M that shows that cows with poor dispositions, or wild cows we'll call them, they have lower reproductive rates and lower weaning weights than their calmer counterparts in their herd. So another good reason to sell that cow that's a little bit hard to handle. Get rid of her. Yeah, it's, it's amazing just how much the carryovers into agriculture and thinking of, you know, selections that have gone when we don't think all the way through what we're selecting for those unintended consequences. You know, we in the plant world for ever, everyone, you know, just selected for yield and we forgot that, oh, actually we're selling food and flavor is one of the, you know, a, can be a major selling point. Uh, but then disease resistance and all these other factors that go into selection. Daniel, one thing I would like to come back to that we you you kind of mentioned about gene editing and gene splicing. What I've seen so far is mainly gene editing in cattle. So that's like to me, that's like turning genes on and turning them off. So that is probably it, it would be the same thing as a natural mutation like poldness, you know, the lack of horns. You know, horned is really the natural occurring Uh, dominant trait in cattle, having horns. Um, And now I know like in the Holsteins, uh, they have actually went in through gene editing and they have turned the horn gene off. I'll say again, I'm not a genetics (laughs) gene jockey or anything, but they have turned that horn gene off so they can make naturally occurring pole cattle. Well, that's something that could have naturally happened anyway, they have just, you know, made it happen through gene editing where it can be more widespread. So that's, an, uh, you know, just and another trivial example of that would be is, uh, you know, I, I've talked to some guys about it. I say, yeah, I'm in the red Angus business. You know, a lot of folks are in the black Angus business. I said, could you take a black Angus animal and make it red? They said, oh, absolutely. 
it, it would be easy to do. He said, it's just a simple, you know, a simple trait, you know, a hide color. And uh, so, you know, I could take any, the most popular black Angus bull in the breed and, um, you know, through gene splicing, I can make a red one, you know. And again, that could happen naturally over time. It would just take generations and, and generations to make that happen. Now, the gene editing or gene splicing, that's where I, I'm, I'm it, that's going to be real interesting. And, and we kind of joked about that a little bit earlier. But what if they could find a segment of a gene that would make cattle resistant to bovine respiratory disease and or make them tolerant to all in to fight tall fescue? But it comes from a duck or a, a soybean plant or, or, you know, then to me, that's, that, that's going to be real interesting to see how we as an agriculture industry handle that, where it's, it's the Holy grail. Again, bovine respiratory disease is something we're, we're challenged with, you know, fescue is something we're challenged with in the fescue belt. Feet problems are something that's becoming more commonly occurring in cattle. What if you could find that gene in, in, you know, whatever, you know, to, uh, to make it, to, to just wipe that problem off the books forever. Will we do that? And I, I don't know. I, I just, that, that's what's coming though. It's going to get real interesting in the future. Well, the debate, the debate that is happening currently in agriculture and yeah, it's when we, we have the ability, um, you know, it's, and genetics is all, like you said, it's a, it's a full spectrum of what we can do and what's, you know, easy and considered natural versus something that's a little bit more extreme. And, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting that it'll be kind of the court of public opinion because we can do it. We're not limited by our abilities. Um, you know, do we, do we want to go down that path? I guess is the way to think about it. I know you're involved with uh, Grasslands Council and some other different things like that. Is um, you know, I, I try to urge producers to get involved with your not only your county cattlemen's association, but obviously your state association. Uh, you know, you don't have to be involved in everything. You don't have to be a member of everything. But you know, there's so many different things that are going on that everything's we're all just trying to be as beneficial as we can to producers. Um, and we just want them to absorb as much information as possible. And if they just, you know, use one or two, you know, one or two tricks or tools or whatever we give them, that's great. Um, but do you have any thing coming up, uh, to look for any, you know, webinars or virtual things going on with any of your other organizations you're involved with or, yeah, you know, it, being involved, I think, socially is one of the great things about uh, the pasture-based livestock business. Uh, whether you're a cattle producer, you know, being involved with your local and state cattlemen's and national cattlemen's association, I would encourage everybody to uh, to look into that. Or if you're a, a small ruminant producer, that we do have a North Carolina Sheep Producers Association. There's there's uh, plenty of equine education opportunities and social opportunities out there. And I would encourage you to, uh, to explore those because you can learn a lot 
uh, about uh, you know your your pastures or or your, your production of your livestock from folks you know like me uh, and 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 my colleagues in the cooperative extension service. But you can also learn a lot from your fellow producers, and I, I think you don't need to overlook that. So so being involved and in attending some of those uh, workshops and meetings will, will be a good thing. Uh, North Carolina Forage and Grassland Council is another one I would sure look into. Uh, they have just finished up their winter conferences. It was a virtual event this year. And I think there's some recordings out there that you can uh, go back and, and view that uh, that would be helpful. I had four uh, uh, different uh, speakers uh, through a series of uh, you know uh, consecutive uh, Tuesdays and uh, this winter. And we look forward to maybe next year having those events face-to-face again. Amazing Grazing uh, is, uh, of course, the organization that I coordinate. Uh, we have uh, ha- kind of hit the pause button a little bit, and uh, because of COVID, uh, we, uh, we we have had some interactions with some producers. And uh, one of the things that I do principally uh, in my job is Amazing Grazing is I support our our boots on the ground livestock agents that are out in our county. So in every county in North Carolina, there is a someone that's uh, looking after forages and livestock. And I, I do, uh, uh, I try to support them from a, a grazing management standpoint. And, uh, but again, our first line of education is always our livestock agents out there. If you're involved in the local food industry, I would encourage you to, um, you know, look up NC Choices. Uh, that's actually a sister organization of uh, Amazing Grazing. We're all under the umbrella of NC State and the Center for Environmental Farming Systems. So NC Choices can really help you, um, you know, stay up to date on uh, uh, local meat production and uh, how to get that meat both produced and processed and marketed uh, can be a, a, a good deal. Uh, also, uh, if you're into social media, there are some good uh, discussion groups uh, on there that uh, involving, uh, you know, meat production, uh, cattle production, you know, whatever species you're looking for. There's some good grazing discussion groups on there. Uh, but again, it's like a lot of things you see on the Internet. Just because it's on there does not mean it's true. <laughs> so uh, make sure that uh, you uh, you kind of sift through some of that information and make sure it passes a smell test. And if there's ever any question, you know, again, go back and uh, quiz your, your local livestock agent because, you know, just because something works great in Oregon, you know, maybe a particular type of grass or something, it may not work here in Caswell County or Piedmont of North Carolina. So there's tremendous opportunities to be engaged. Uh, we, uh, we, Amazing Grazing and NC State Extension, we, uh, we look forward to uh, resuming our normal meeting schedule. That's one thing that we were famous for with Amazing Grazing is having in the field workshops and demonstrations. And again, COVID has kind of limited that somewhat. We have wrapped up a few projects that we've had going on. One of those is a cow efficiency project where we've taken some cow weights and comparing that to the weaning weights of their calves. So we're summarizing some of that data. 
And um, there's going to be a lot of good things uh, uh, coming forward, you know, with amazing grazing. Uh, we got a lot of projects that are in the queue right now <laughs> that we should have already had completed, a lot of pending grants, but obviously we've had extensions because of COVID. So they're going to be, uh, we're going to be in hyperdrive here over the next uh, 12 to 18 months. And uh, you'll be seeing a lot more from us, but uh, we appreciate the support, appreciate the opportunity to work with uh, all the North Carolina farmers and uh, ranchers across the state. If you have any questions for us, you can find all of our contact information at caswell.ces.ncsu.edu. Our music is the artist Cletus Scott Shot with the track 